Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can factually be supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics that we cover, some of our episodes might get heavy and some topics might seem divisive, but we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way that it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Episode topic this week comes to us from a listener and a dear friend who has found himself in a bit of a predicament. Uh, someone close to him is, well, they're profoundly convinced that America is on the immediate super fast track to becoming the next Venezuela because of our progressive or to some, I guess, socialist. <laughs> this isn't this isn't the episode for it, but no. yeah, right. But no. but according to this person, uh, our current progressive government. Um, and rapidly rising inflation are are basically putting us on the Audubon toward becoming the next Venezuela. And this listener would love to be able to have a well-thought-out conversation with their loved one, using facts and research to steer the ship. But they don't even know where to start. And that is where we come in. That's the whole purpose of this podcast. We take these big, complicated, hot topic issues and help people come closer together through information. Theoretically, <laughs> we try the this problem was made for what we are trying to do. So today we're going to do our civic duty and walk you and him through the primary talking points of the argument, um, how Venezuela got into the mess they're in, the history about inflation in the United States, a primer a little bit uh, <laughs> about like some of the terms that we'll be covering and, you know, how we can tell if we're on that same track. I'm not going to lie. This might be the most intimidating topic we've taken on for me, which is weird. I've said that once before, and I don't know. I don't remember what that was on. But this one, as soon as we were like, yeah, we're going to do it, I was like, ah, crap. I don't know why. We've done Ooh. systemic racism and for-profit prisons and voting arguments and all of that. But much like our listener, um, this topic seems so massive to me that breaking it down was just like daunting like how do you even start um but i think we managed all right so everyone strap in and let us regale you with information about the most fascinating topic in the world economics dun 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 Okay, but before we really dive into this, like you said, we do want to take a minute to bring out some definitions that some of you 
that I know that I did not really have a good working familiarity with. We've not been the best about remembering that not everybody has that same level of knowledge that we have after we've spent a couple dozen combined hours researching something. So really quick and relatively quick, I guess, for us. Relative. Yeah. <laughs> right. This section <laughs> just kept getting longer and longer. Kind of partially quick in a fireside kind of way. Let's yeah. talk about what inflation actually is. Inflation is best described as the decline of purchasing power of a given currency over time. This is most apparent to the average consumer in something like, well, like the price of a cup of coffee. In fact, that's actually a pretty common metric. As the purchasing power of the US dollar decreases, for example, this will be reflected in an increase in the cost of a cup of coffee. When the same 12 ounce cup of coffee goes from a buck to a buck 50, that's inflation. And a lot of people kind of fall into the trap that inflation is bad, but that's not necessarily the case. It can be bad sometimes, yes, but at other times it's not only good, it's necessary. So most economists agree that steady, sustained inflation occurs when a nation's money supply growth, the money supply growth, outpaces economic growth. So money supply is just the cash as well as the deposits that can be used as easily as cash within a country. So when the treasury is printing money faster than our country can produce goods and services that people are spending money on, we get inflation. So to oversimplify things a a bit, a lot, imagine you have a rock and it weighs one pound. And you're the only person with this rock, with any rock. And we know that one pound of rock is worth enough to buy one cup of coffee. But then you break the rock in half. You now have two half pound rocks. You still call each rock a rock. And for all intents and purposes, they are worth one rock a piece, right? But since each rock is physically smaller, They don't have the same amount of real value. So now one rock is worth half a cup of coffee. So you need two rocks combined to equal the same value as one cup of coffee because that cup of coffee is still worth the same amount. Now you can keep breaking that rock up as much as you'd like, but that cup of coffee is still going to need one pound of rock to pay for it. So if you break it into 50 pieces, you still only have one pound. You're going to have to give 50 rocks for it. Obviously, this isn't a perfect analogy, especially in the modern economic world. So don't hang your hat on that metaphor. We're just trying to explain that how money supply is related to inflation. There's a lot more that goes into the calculations for value and money supply. I mean, people literally get degrees in this stuff after all. But for our purposes, I don't think we need to go much deeper than that when it comes to money supply and how it relates. As we said earlier, inflation can be either good or bad depending on who's talking and how they hold their wealth. For example, if you hold a lot of tangible assets like property or gold or some other valuable thing that you can hold or feel, you generally would want to see some inflation because as inflation goes up, so too does the price of whatever tangible thing you're holding. Of course, on the flip side, those who are buying those goods will likely not be too pleased that inflation has caused the price of them to go up. 
The counterpoint then is that holding your assets in currency of some sort, like cash or bonds, means you aren't really a fan of inflation. The $100 you had in your bank account slowly loses buying power. $100 in 1950 went a whole lot farther than $100 in 2021. Inflation plays an important role in the economy by promoting speculation by both businesses and individuals. So both tr both groups are trying to get better returns than mere inflation. So they invest in, in companies and in products to try to get that return. So therefore, there's a, a just right level of inflation promoted to encourage spending a little bit. So remember, with inflation, it's, it's better to buy tangible goods and let the value increase with inflation. So with a manageable level of inflation, money holders spend money, theorizing that it will be worth less to just hold it in cash. Um, conversely, with deflation, which is a general decline in prices for goods and services, um, or an increase in buying power, if you will, prices of goods go down. So purchasing power of currency increases with time. So this would encourage people to basically sit on their cash, effectively removing it from the economy. This is ultimately unsustainable long-term as it would eventually cause the economic output of a country to, to stall and potentially cause an economic crash. As you can probably imagine, controlling inflation is a complex problem. And it's done in the United States Federal Reserve, usually referred to as the Fed, which is our central bank. A central bank is basically the financial institution that has control over the production and distribution of money and credit for a nation, or sometimes a group of nations. The Fed tries to lay out a plan for the future so businesses can plan for inflation. Businesses need to know roughly what to expect from inflation, or they won't be able to accurately price their products and services. In broad terms, the Fed tries to control inflation through moderate long-term interest rates, price stability, and maximum employment. Combined, these goals maximize stability in the financial world. Importantly, maximum employment doesn't mean zero unemployment. That's actually kind of impossible, really. It just means that as many people are employed as possible, and this is really based on employers' evaluations. To achieve these goals, the Fed has a lot of tools, and some of them are kind of the bigger guns, quote-unquote, uh, that are available when things really hit the fan. Uh, so after the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. Fed lowered interest rates to near zero and started buying bonds. This is called quantitative easing, and you really don't need to know much for our discussion about quantitative easing um, other than it's an unconventional tactic and it helps add new money to the economy. So combined, these two methods encourage more lending and borrowing in turn, meaning more money flowing through the economy, meaning more economic activity in general, which hopefully means a stimulated economy, which is all done to combat the effects of a recession or even a depression. In the U.S., the Fed strives to keep the inflation rate around 2% per year. Rapidly growing economies can handle more inflation, so some countries target 4% or more per year if they're experiencing an economic growth spurt. However, if the Fed, or whatever central governing bank is responsible for the country in question, isn't careful, 
Things like quantitative easing and low interest rates can lead to hyperinflation. This is when an economy experiences rapid, excessive, and out-of-control general price increases. Hyperinflation is typically described as an inflation rate of 50% per month or more. So let's go back to our coffee explanation. Imagine in January of this year, right, a cup of coffee costs $1. With a hyperinflation rate of 50%, by February, that same cup of coffee, the same amount, will cost $1.50. It's not so bad. By March, we're looking at $2.25, standard Starbucks cup of coffee. However, that's over the course of three months. That's really fast. By December, that same cup of coffee will cost a whopping $86.50. And that's assuming a constant 50% inflation rate. But the problem with hyperinflation is that it can cause us a spiral. And an inflation rate of 50% in January could skyrocket to 1,000% by December or faster or higher. I am too terrified to find out what my daily coffee habit would cost me at those rates. <laughs> Suffice it to say, it would be absurd. I think Jeff Bezos himself would struggle to afford it. Um, so I think this kind of sets the scene for the following conversation. You're going to hear us referencing inflation, uh, hyperinflation. Th that's sort of like the background driver that's at work in all of these forces. So let's get out of the economic definitional part of this one and into the actual history, shall we? Yes. Okay. So what's the story here? How did we get to a place where people are legitimately afraid that we're on track for egg prices higher than a month's wages? Honestly, it all comes down to effective storytelling. We've talked before about the power of a narrative to drive a message deeper and shortcut the rationality that we use to approach so many situations. It's part of the reason that conspiracy theories are so effective, and it's present in every successful marketing campaign you will ever encounter. And this? This is a story that Americans have been hearing for a hundred years. At this point, it's practically a part of the American mythos. Yeah, as early as 1917... In the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution, anti-communist activists in America were preying on the fears of average Americans and weaving tales that highlighted the potential dangers of allowing communists to function openly in American society. The U.S. was experiencing a wave of labor strikes, more than 3,000 between April and October. And the press was quick to lay the blame on Immigrants, <laughs> handy dandy, always there, accusing them of trying to undermine the American way of life. After the United States entered World War I, legal means became available to discourage this anti-American ideology. The 1918 Sedition Act criminalized socialists and pacifists and other anti-war activists by imposing harsh penalties on anyone found guilty of making false statements that interfered with the prosecution of the war, insulting or abusing the U.S. government, the flag, the Constitution, or the military, agitating against the production of necessary war materials, or advocating, teaching, or defending any of these acts. Which... I know a lot of people that would be in jail right now. Right. True story. <laughs> like, a lot, a lot. On both sides of the party, because 
or both sides of the political spectrum because like I could pretty much make a case for literally anybody for one of those. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's so broad and so uh, reaching that today there's not a single one of us who wouldn't be guilty under the Sedition Act. Not a one. Yeah. So much for the freedom of speech, man. Right. Which we have covered extensively. You should go back mm. and listen, friends. Yeah, By the yeah. end of World War II, a distinct story pattern had already emerged. We cannot allow communism any space or the horrors that our men in uniform witnessed in their foreign fight for democracy will happen to us. Propaganda, like a comic book called Is This Tomorrow, were published by activist organizations warning unsuspecting patriots that these people are working day and night, laying the groundwork to overthrow your government. The average American is prone to say, it can't happen here. Millions of people in other countries used to say the same thing. Today, they are dead or living in communist slavery. It must not happen here. And I kid you not, this is a real comic book. We will post it on our social. Uh, it's so good. like, it is, I love propaganda. I have a special place in my heart for propaganda. And I would love to own an original copy of this because it's it's amazing. I, it is also very eerie because I've heard pretty much every single one of those, like in the last, I don't know, year, easy. Yeah. From somebody honestly, like earnestly making that argument. I mean, shoot, a year is being generous, maybe a week. Right. Right. Like if if people weren't still telling the story, we would not even been doing this episode. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it's a refrain that's been on constant repeat for the last 75 years. Anyone of a certain age will remember the videos of elderly women in the USSR standing in bread lines 50 people deep. And this, we were taught, would be us if we let communist ideas take hold. And though the countries we use to warn each other of the imminent danger shift from time to time, that narrative remains the same. And yet, ironically, we ended up standing in food lines last year. And I think continuing into this year for miles and miles and miles. I guess we're communists. Right, we must <laughs> the be. the only explanation. We must be. Anyway, Venezuela is just the latest in the list of examples of what not to do. It was used as a talking point by none other than former President Trump throughout the 2020 presidential campaign. He warned voters that choosing a democratic president would certainly lead to the economic downfall of America. That's not how he said it, though. Of course it's not. He said it. This will be the most dangerous election we've ever had. I used to say it lightly, but now I say it very strongly because it's a similar ideology. This will be a large scale, very large scale Venezuela if they win. Nailed it. God. Reading... Bias, 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 and I'm done. And that has remained this, this communism, America is going to turn into the next communist, you know, downfall. Um, that has remained a talking point for conservative pundits ever since. So that's kind of the background of this doomsday tale. It's, it's rooted in a very old <laughs> traditional American fear. <laughs> right? It's an American folktale at this point. 
Yeah, of anything that's that's not our literal government. Like, if it's any other ty- type of government, it's going to lead to the downfall of America. 100%. But why is Venezuela even a relevant example to use in this conversation? Like, why? Why? What about their politics or economy serves as a cautionary tale for Americans? Well, let's hop in the time machine and head to the not-so-distant past, shall we? We are headed to February 1999. That's when President Hugo Chavez took office and completely changed the way that Venezuela's economic system functioned. Rather than a free market ideology, Venezuela under Chavez embraced a model focused on state-led redistributive development. They more than doubled their state spending on healthcare and education, poverty and unemployment were cut in half, and healthy oil-driven economic growth helped fund their social progress. Now, during the first four years of his presidency, the Venezuelan economy was threatened by a labor strike at the state-owned oil producer, the PDVSA. During the first quarter of 2003, the country's GDP actually fell by 27%. It was shocking and terrifying. And so, absolutely determined not to let the same thing happen again, Chavez instituted a series of measures to stop the bleeding fixed the exchange rate to the U.S. dollar, and implemented import controls and nationalized other important industries, heavily subsidizing food and consumer goods. And the people were happy with this democratic socialist approach. Chavez's party won 16 of the 17 elections held between 1998 and 2012, and many of them by a really large margin, and without any apparent tampering. That's like, we read your mind, isn't it, right? Even former President Carter, who apparently had some street cred in election monitoring, uh, called their election process the best in the world. During this time, electoral participation in the country actually increased significantly. Now, I can feel it. I can feel the people out there. Ah, the hate that we're talking positive about Chavez. So this is where we're going to pop in and say, yes, we know that there are very many people in the world who consider Hugo Chavez to be a dictator, possibly even an evil dictator. We're not here to discuss his personality as a leader. We're not going to, that's not the focus of this topic. We are only talking about their democratic process and how it's relevant to comparisons between the United States and Venezuela. Right. There is an argument to be made that during his time as president, Chavez helped bring Latin America to a place of greater independence than they had ever previously enjoyed. And he also did quite a bit to popularize the idea of socialism. Right. Contrary to what American education systems might have us believe, um, there are is a lot of nuance in history and leaders. And uh, funny how that works. It's crazy that sometimes a terrible person or a terrible leader can do good things. Sometimes they're just a terrible leader. But like right. even under the Trump administration, which chafed me, like there are good things to come out of that. And I right. think anybody who doesn't recognize that is completely blinded. Um, that's neither here nor there for this conversation. After Hugo Chavez died in 2013, something went really 
obviously wrong. And Venezuela found itself in an acute economic crisis that had people waiting in hours-long lines to pay grotesquely inflated prices for essential goods. The stories out of Venezuela in the last five years have been harrowing. Patients dying in hospitals completely devoid of medicines, protesters rioting in the streets demanding food, and people rooting through the garbage for scraps of food because grocery stores are empty. Millions have fled the poverty and the violence. Really, the idea that America could find itself in a similar situation is terrifying. But to know whether that's a reality for us, we have to understand how they got there. So what happened? Well, a few things, actually. But a lot of the crisis can be tied back, in one way or another, to one key factor. Texas tea. Well, Argentinian. Nope. Venezuelan tea. <laughs> Black gold. Oil. Venezuela had a butt-ton of oil, or to be more precise, the world's largest oil reserves. And they have long relied on that oil as their primary, and really only, export. Now, Venezuela's oil is on the thicker side, and it's pretty expensive to refine. But in the late 2000s, when Chavez's policies, collectively called Chavismo, in some circles, were in full swing, the oil market was booming, and even their more expensive-to-refine oil was insanely profitable. Like, a GDP of $371 billion in 2013, $482 billion in 2014. In comparison, the GDP for 99, which is when Chavez took office, was just under $100 billion. And what better to do with a ton of oil money than spend it, right? Most of Venezuela's oil is produced by a state-owned oil company, which we mentioned earlier, called PDVSA. And so when the windfall came, the government remained in firm control of the money. They spent it on their social programs, but they also borrowed heavily from lenders overseas. Like, really, really heavily. $120 billion of foreign debt in 2016, heavily. Which means that both the government and the economy were heavily dependent on maintaining those profits to keep paying for their plans. But then, oil prices tanked. They dropped from more than $100 a barrel in mid-2014 to less than $30 a barrel in mid-2016. Oil and gas accounted for more than 95% of Venezuela's export revenue in 2016, and the country didn't really produce much else. So when the revenue that they were generating from their oil-based goods fell through the floor, the country didn't have another reliable way to generate the money it needed to import all the things that Venezuelan people needed, like food and medicine. And they had to try and stay on top of their debt repayments, or they risked losing control of essential PDVSA assets to foreign debtors. So the government was broke. And all those measures that Chavez had implemented in 2003 made it nearly impossible for the economy to recover well. 
And then to add another layer of mess, Venezuela also found itself in a political crisis. Well, technically the political problems came first, but they didn't cause the humanitarian crisis we're talking about. They just make this problem that was caused by the oil a whole lot more complicated. When Chavez died in March of 2013, his hand-picked successor, Nicolas Maduro, stood poised to take the reins of government as head of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. And he did, but just barely. And when he eked out that win, the opposition party, well, they began protesting, sometimes violently. They protested his win, they protested the ruling party, And then, when the Socialist Party won victories in the 2013 municipal elections, the the opposition was spurred to even new vigor. The protests disrupted the country for months, and those in opposition to Maduro and the United Socialist Party continued fighting for years. Then, when the economy began to to decline, many Venezuelans blamed Maduro and his government, and the opposing parties grew in popularity. The opposition parties won control of the Venezuelan National Assembly, 109 members to 54 in support of the government, making it the first time in 16 years that the assembly had not been in pro-government control. That was in 2016. Yes. The first time in 16 years that that they hadn't been in control. So when Maduro stood for re-election in 2018, the process was regarded as... mm, Highly controversial. (laughs) Opposition candidates had been barred from running, or jailed, or had even fled the country for fear of being imprisoned. The National Assembly refused to consider the election legitimate, and many opposition parties boycotted the process. After Maduro claimed victory, the Assembly refused to recognize him as president. Instead, they suggested that because the election was illegitimate, the presidency was vacant. And that's where a man named Juan Guaido comes in, citing articles in the Venezuelan constitution that call for the leader of the National Assembly to step in when the presidency is vacant. Guaido declared himself acting president. More than 50 countries, including the United States, recognized him as the legitimate president of Venezuela and refused to engage in diplomatic conversation with Maduro's government. And again... This is where we pause to interject that we are not here to comment on the legitimacy of Maduro's election or Guaido's claim to power. We're here to talk about how this unrest has led to to the significant quality of life crisis in Venezuela. So the two governments have been at odds for more than two years, and the people of Venezuela have been caught in the crossfire. Because of the political situation, the United States imposed sanctions on Maduro's government, restricting their access to U.S. financial markets, and more, and they insisted on working with Guaido to provide him what little humanitarian aid they deemed appropriate. But Maduro, being concerned with maintaining his power, has worked to block Guaido's efforts and any aid that may be provided to the countries through him. Hmm. Basically, there's a huge mess, and because nobody can decide who's in control, and because many countries in the world absolutely refuse to uh, recognize a socialist leader, they can't get the foreign aid that they need to help clean up this mess. Yeah. 
it's weird talking about this as history because I remember it as it was happening. Yeah. Like I have memories of being conscious of it as it was going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just, it's, it's a layer cake of problems, right? right? It's more than one. You've got the fact that not only the governmental issues, but the, the oil prices tanking and the fact that the government basically controlled the main export and the fact that it was the only export. Right. It's just like it was a domino effect that caused their economy to just buckle under its own weight. Yeah, it's like obviously when you're when you're rolling in the dough that heavy, you're not thinking about what happens if the bottom drops out. Right. And that's exactly yep. what happened. Yeah. But I feel yeah. like I feel like we have to talk about inflation now because so much of this story uh, gets convoluted with what well, we have a democratic government and inflation's going up, so we will become Venezuela. Right. But the truth is, Venezuela isn't the only country to actually struggle with hyperinflation. Shoot, it's not even the worst example. And the U.S. actually has its own pretty wild history with inflation. Between 1775 and 1913, the U.S. economy grew unpredictably. In 1776, the inflation rate was a whopping 29.78%. By 1913, the U.S. experienced four more periods of double-digit inflation. So the powers that be thought that it would be best to address it. Thus, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 established the Federal Reserve System as the central bank of the United States, with the end goal of forming a safe and more flexible and more stable monetary and financial system. The law essentially gives the Federal Reserve the power to set monetary policy so that a central authority can plan for and control things like inflation. Even more importantly, the Fed is mandated to act to moderate inflation by intervening in matters of currency and debt and equity markets. Prices in the U.S. throughout history were linked to to whether the value of the dollar was fixed in terms of gold and or silver, right? If it was backed by metal. This is called a gold standard if it's backed by gold or a silver standard if it's backed by silver. And it basically means that for each dollar in circulation, the U.S. has a reserve of gold or silver that match that value. We physically had that gold. You know, that's why Fort Knox is, you know, the place, right, to rob because it's filled with the gold for the U.S. government. So think of the U.S. dollar in these cases as as an IOU from the government to the person holding it. At any time, the person could go to the government and trade their dollar for an equivalent amount of gold or silver. From 1775 to 1833, the U.S. was effectively on the silver standard. And then in 1834, the U.S. switched to a gold standard. The gold standard broke down globally during World War I, when it was replaced by the gold exchange standard, which lasted from 1925 to 1931. We don't really need to get into the specifics of that. After World War II, we adopted the Bretton Woods system, which basically fixed the price of gold for the central banks. Like that was a, it was a global agreement. 
That is, they would only pay a specified amount, the central banks would, even if the open market prices were higher. So you could theoretically, this happened, um, if you were in a crisis, you could buy gold. The Fed could buy gold for like 30, I think it was 35 cents a troy ounce or maybe just an ounce. And then you could like turn around and take it to the open market where it was selling for 50 cents an ounce, theoretically, hypothetically, it's not an, that's not an exact number. And you could just make, you know, $15 profit per ounce on it and just sell it. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand the Bretton Woods agreement and, and everything about it. Uh, but <laughs> I know that it's collapse in 1971, uh, reverberated throughout the world and the impacts can still be felt today. After Bretton Woods, the dollar and, and most currencies um, are, are fiat money, fiat money. Um, and that basically means it's valuable because we say it is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like loyalty points at Starbucks. They have no monetary value, but if you have enough of them, you can exchange them for a cup of coffee because Starbucks said so. Yeah, don't think about it too deeply. I'm just trying to give us some history here. Yeah, it's, don't, do, not come for my, do not come for my stars. Yeah, do not come know, for them. But I'm just saying, like, let's don't think we're not here to talk about the problems with uh, with fiat money and, and your spucks points uh, today. OK, that's fair. So prior to World War Two, periods of high inflation were followed by periods of deflation. Basically, in the periods of high inflation, the U.S. said, yeah, so we're just going to stop allowing you to convert your dollars to gold which allowed the government to meet the need for increased revenue to pay for, well, well, it was mainly to pay for wars. And then World War II saw inflation going up again to pay for the war, and then after the war to pay for the debt accrued to pay for the war. Yeah, we pay for a lot of yep. wars around here. Yep. In the 1970s, we had a combination of high inflation and low output, mainly due to the oil market. But real-life American hero, maybe, and Federal Reserve Chairman, definitely, Paul Volcker managed to effectively counter the inflation, and the U.S. inflation rate has been relatively low and stable ever since. However, with the failure of the Bretton Woods system, or the collapse, however <laughs> you want to word it, the abandonment, right. um, there is a fairly significant change in inflation patterns since we departed from that, that gold standard. Prior to that, since the value of the dollar was tied to the value of a tangible good, of a metal, when inflation went up, it would eventually drop back down because the value of the backing metal itself didn't increase as fast as inflation. So this is why we saw periods of deflation after the Civil War and World War I. So the price would normalize. It would return to the mean, basically. Now, however, price level increases are, well, relatively permanent. There is a trade-off 
I mean, this there is a good to come from this, and that is that inflation volatility has decreased significantly, which is good in the long term, as we mentioned earlier, for businesses and industry. It allows them to project out and make plans. So the U.S. is familiar with some pretty wild fluctuations in inflation and some changes to how our currency works just to begin with. But the existence of the Federal Reserve has, so far, managed to keep things in check and on a relatively healthy course. So what does all this talk about gold systems and inflation and my Starbucks points have to do with Venezuela? Well, remember that theory from the political right about how socialism plus hyperinflation have turned Venezuela into a modern dystopia. That general belief has led to this perception that the real and primary cause of the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela is inflation by way of socialism. And to be fair, the levels of inflation the country have seen are mind-blowingly high. Remember when we were talking about hyperinflation, we talk about getting into the thousands of percents. I think Venezuela got into the tens of thousands of percents. I think at one point it was a million percent. Right. Like mind-blowingly high. But there's more to the conversation about why most Venezuelans can't afford a gallon of milk than a standard inflation is high response. And so we've really come to the crux of this conversation. Is America on its way to becoming the next Venezuela? Are we on the brink of profound economic collapse? Let's take a look at the boxes that we'd have to check to find ourselves in the same situation. Right. Going back to the story of Venezuela, let's look at what happened. First, the federal government would need to have control of the country's primary revenue source. In the story of Venezuela, Chavez's government took control of the nation's primary export, oil. In the U.S., refined petroleum and crude petroleum are also our biggest exports, earning about $147 billion in 2019. But we also export cars, which earned us about $57 billion in 2019. And circuits, that was $41 billion. And vehicle parts, another $41 billion. In order for the United States to find itself in a similar position of economic volatility, the federal government would have to have primary controlling interest in all of those industries and control the profits from their exports. And then the federal government would need to rely on those profits to fund social programs and and use those assets as collateral for significant debt to further fund social programs. Kind of snowballs. Yeah. And and then also pay for essential imports. Because remember, Venezuela had to pay for everything coming into the country. They didn't have a lot of domestic production of critical needs. Right now, the United States federal government and all of our state governments rely on tax revenue to fund everything from infrastructure to welfare programs. In 2018, tax revenue equaled 24% of the U.S. GDP. For those safety nets to be compromised, tax revenue would have to essentially disappear either because the government stopped collecting it or because people and businesses stopped paying it. But the push from the current administration is to collect more taxes from the very wealthy and from businesses to help fund the programs we currently have and accomplish new goals. Okay, so if we happen to check those two first things off the list, the next we would proceed to 
a limited ability to provide essential goods for Americans. We kind of hinted at it just a minute ago. One significant factor in the struggles that Venezuela has faced is their reliance on imports to support the population. One United Nations report noted that in 2017, Venezuela was only capable of producing food for about 30% of the population. And this is due to some of the regulations that Chavez put in place and the, the inability to pay for the subsidies for, for agricultural production and a whole bunch of other reasons, but they can only provide food for a third of their population. And while it is true that the United States imports about half of our fresh fruits and vegetables, a third of our wine and our sugar, and even 95% of our coffee and our cocoa and our spices, the general consensus is that U.S. farmers are capable of producing enough food to feed Americans should we have to stop importing all food for some reason. And we likely wouldn't even experience the significant medication shortages that Venezuela did, as 75% of the money that we spend on medications in the U.S. is on domestically manufactured drugs. Oh yeah, and the checks and balances that govern U.S. inflation would have to break down completely. Yeah, basically, the Federal Reserve, which we talked about earlier, would have to cease to function. Yeah. And... Typically, it the the Fed is a party agnostic institution. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been experiencing some more pressure in in recent years um, to do things to operate a certain way. Uh, but I, I think, I mean, even under some pretty intense pressure from the Trump administration to do certain things, um, the Fed continued to operate based on what it thought was necessary to control inflation Mm -hmm. and not because of the influence of a political party. Right. So that check and and how they control our money and how our money um, is made would all have to start dissolving. And I know we print a lot of money, and especially with these, a lot of people are concerned about the uh, the payouts from the government, the COVID relief payments, mm-hmm. and how we're just printing money and whatnot. But it's be- because of the way the fiat system works, it isn't like that rock and the cup of coffee example that I gave earlier. They're By putting more money into the economy, they are allowing more economic movement, mm-hmm. more economic output, which is along the same lines as the quantitative easing that I talked about. It kind of helps stimulate borrowing and loaning and people buying things, right? especially the extremely poor. We talked about that in a previous episode when we were discussing uh, the minimum wage. The lowest income levels tend to spend the largest portion of their paychecks because they have to, Mm -hmm. right? So by giving out these stimulus payments, it's not like that money is just being sent into somebody's bank account. Most of it is going right back into the economy and it's being used and each dollar that gets spent gets spent over and over and over again. The money just isn't being printed and lying around. Not to mention the fact that the U.S. dollar is also a global currency. It is something that a lot of, of foreign debts are, are 
underwritten in like it's they have to be paid in u.s dollars or they're measured in u.s dollars which is not something that venezuela could claim right so right the u.s dollar has a lot of things a lot of factors lending its strength that venezuelan currency did not have right and um we diversified our investments (laughs) Just a bit. We're not reliant on just oil. So at this point, we don't, we really don't even need to continue the checklist, I don't think. It's pretty evident that the claim of a Biden presidency ushering in imminent collapse in a way that mirrors the crisis in Venezuela is just not sound. It requires so many prerequisites, so many caveats so many fundamental changes to the way that our government and our economy operates that the urgency towards action just isn't rational. Right. Nobody needs to make a plan for moving their entire family to a foreign country because inflation, hyperinflation is coming for you imminently. Right. We're, we are not fortune tellers. We are not predicting the far future. And yeah, does this administration and progressive politics in general have the aim of moving us closer to a system of broader social programs? Sure. But where we are now, we are very far from the Chavismo that set the stage for Venezuela's story. Absolutely. And in one thing I thought of, just so importantly, in that socialist government under Chavez, the government controlled not just the social programs, but also their export, their industry. In the United States, our government's currently, the progressive part of the government, I should say, is currently pushing only to control one half of that equation. And I would argue not even to control it, just to aid people with it and that would be like our social programs it's a very different setup i know a lot of people are scared right now because they're seeing inflation it's very apparent right now we're at something like five percent for the month maybe four percent which is high Mm -hmm. right that's higher than the two percent that the fed aims to do but don't you can't do analysis in a vacuum. Right. You can't just look at that number and be like, oh no, it's the end of the world. You have to remember where we are in history. So for the last year, because of the global pandemic, a lot of our industries have been shut down. Like lumber, that's the one that I'm thinking of specifically. Mm-hmm. Our production for lumber has been impacted by by the coronavirus. And even if it's not, and and that's just one aspect of it, not just the production, but the transport of it, the ability to get it to the end user, the people going out to buy it have gone down. Everything was suppressed for a year. And then we got our vaccines. Hopefully. (laughs) And we were able to start going back out into the world. But what happened, our supply of these products was very low, Mm -hmm. comparatively. 
but the demand was suddenly skyrocketing. So we're seeing the price of lumber go up, not because of, you know, just they, it just got more expensive all of a sudden, but because a lot of people want lumber right now and our mills are still spinning up and our transportation industry is still rolling out to move these products now. And it's the same thing for, uh, for Starbucks. There's a national shortage in Starbucks right now. Mm-hmm. I have noticed too much to my frustration because um, I need my, uh, my egg bites. They're delicious. Um, hashtag basic. Um, but also in gasoline, in fuel. Oil's up right now because production was down last year. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, we have how many millions of people back out going to their jobs, driving, the summer's coming up, people are going to be going out on vacation because they're just stir crazy now. Demand, very, very, very high, but production is still lagging because we had a global pandemic. So when you hear discussions about how the inflation is very high right now, understand that This is not permanent in this situation, and the Fed is expecting it to come back down and to normalize. There is a chance, there is a chance that for the year, it could be 4%. But it could also be lower than that, and the Fed is working to keep it in line with that roughly 2% measure. Right. Even if we hit 4%, it's not the end of the world for the United States. We will be fine. Right. I mean, if we survived 29%, I think we'll be okay. Oh, yeah. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. All right, dear listener. So we we would love to we would love to hear from you about mm. how you feel like we answered this particular listener's question. Did we cover all the bases? Did we help him figure out how he could respond to his loved one in a rational and research-focused way. Um, If you would like to tell us all about it, you can do that in a whole lot of ways. You could send us an email, well thought out, well sourced, sharing your deep, deep feelings. You could send that to firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. You could leave us a review telling us that you think that it is absolutely brilliant that we titled one of the sections of our outline, The Collapse of America, a checklist. I thought that was hilarious. You can tell me that you also think it's hilarious. There is a handy link in the episode description that you can click on, and it will take you to an option to choose your most relevant podcast listening platform where you can say kind and wonderful things about us and know that we will love you forever. And then if you would love to see what the cover of Is This Tomorrow, my favorite new piece of American propaganda looks like, you can follow us on the social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, and you can find us by searching Fireside Breakdowns. Correct. You think our one year's coming up, It correct? is. It is. One year of doing the show. Um, which, if you haven't been listening since the beginning, we used to do this every other week. That's why there's only 39 <laughs> yes. episodes and not 52. Um, however, I think... Will we be ready for the the sort of announcement and drive for the one year? Is that the plan? Oh, yeah. We could totally be ready for that. I think we can be ready for that. So, you know, 
Keep an eye out. Keep an eye out. Cool things are coming. Get your reviews ready for the the awesome review surge, hopefully. hopefully. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) Kind of. And um, get that and and stand by for that. Uh, We're pretty excited. Yeah. Um, So I guess it's time for some good news. And then we're going to go to bed because it's actually tomorrow. Yes. Um, (laughs) We're recording this. So good news. Uh, continuing our efforts to focus our good news on real issues facing the LGBTQ plus community. Today, we have a study that brings us some common sense results, but could go a long way in furthering the normalization of gender affirming care for transgender adults. A report published in, what is it? The Journal of American Medicine Association? Yep, Journal of the American Medical Association. Nicely oh, done. Yes. Um, surgery uh, compared the psychological distress levels, suicide risk, and substance use in trans and gender diverse people who had undergone gender affirming surgery with those who wanted such procedures but had not yet had them. Gender affirming surgery, by the way, is the term used now for things like gender reassignment surgery. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. It is used to reflect the growing. Um, support for the idea in the medical and, and scientific community that um, gender is not the dichotomy that we thought it once was and that your outward appearance doesn't always reflect the your actual your gender right and so by calling it gender reassignment it was kind of a a knock mm-hmm. on that, you know, it kind of undermined that mentality because it was saying, you know, you were being, you were changing your gender when it's more like you're, you're changing to be more in line with the gender that you have always identified with, that you have always thought that you were. So the vernacular is changing, but know that that's what it is. Overall, Gender-affirming surgery was associated with a 42% reduction in psychological distress, a 44% reduction in suicidal thoughts, and a 35% reduction in tobacco smoking. And while it feels like the outcome of the study is exactly what is to be expected, there is hope that having numbers associated with these outcomes will help pave the way for more affirming care in the future. Because it really highlights that this isn't something that is done by people who are just confused, right. who have, who are just trying to get attention, right? The vast majority of people who undergo these radical transformational surgeries are much happier on the other side of it. I think it's great that we finally have some data that shows that. Exactly. I think... That's going to be everything for us on this fine, fine I don't even know evening, what day it is. Morning. At whatever time you're listening to this, insert time of day here. Uh, we will be back in one week with another incredibly interesting topic. And until that point, take care of each other. <laughs>